And then page 870 in the back of the red hymnal will be our catechism lesson for tonight. John 1, we will focus on verse 14 for our text. As the scripture reading, I'll read from the beginning of John. Verse 1, John 1, 1 through 14. Verse 14 is our text for tonight. This is God's holy word. Let's give our attention to its reading, John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of God endures forever. Amen. Page 870, question 21. I'm actually going to go through 21 and 22 tonight and probably focus a little bit more on question 22. So question 21. Uh, Let's say the answers together with one voice. Who is the Redeemer of God's elect? The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who, being the eternal Son of God, became man, and so was and continueth to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. How did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her, yet without sin. We're going to consider uh, the incarnation tonight, God becoming man in Jesus Christ. And going to be some finer points of this doctrine, this set of doctrines that we're going to try to to bring out. And that's appropriate for us to do. I was reading uh, John Flavel, a Puritan pastor, and just by way of encouragement as we begin tonight, he said, knowledge is man's excellency above the beasts of the field. It sets us apart uh, from the animals. 
the way that we can learn and to know and to grow in our knowledge. But knowledge of Christ is the, Christian, the Christian's excellency above the heathen. And those who know not Christ, if we know of Jesus Christ, that is a great excellency that we have. He goes on to say, saving knowledge of Christ is the sincere Christian's excellency above the hypocrite. There are those who may say the name of Christ to take his name upon their lips, but they do not truly know him. Then he has this fourth stage, which is really where he's leading. It's very interesting. He says this, methodical, well-digested knowledge of Christ is the strong Christian's excellency above the weak. And so he says that there is a saving, but an immethodical knowledge of Christ that will bring us to heaven. And those who don't uh, have particular things about Christ or the God of Scripture or about the Bible itself, who don't have those things well digested and understood and look at it from different angles and consider it in different ways, they have a knowledge that will bring them to, to heaven. But those who do have that methodical, well-digested, well-considered knowledge of Christ, that will bring heaven to us. Because the more that we know him, the more that we understand about him, can grasp those things about him, the more we will love him, the more we will treasure him, the more we will commune with him. And in those ways, heaven comes to us while we are here on earth, for we commune uh, with the, the, the Christ who lives and who reigns. So there will be some things we say tonight that uh, we're trying to talk about the natures and the persons and, and uh, the natures and the person of Christ and how that works. And it's definitely a profound mystery. But to consider those things and to put those things before us is indeed a great and a wonderful part of all of our Christian duties. And it helps us to commune with God in, uh, in a greater way. So how did the incarnation happen? The word, we read, the word became flesh. The catechism is obviously leading us to this point. It talks about sin is separated us from God. It brings us all of the miseries of this life uh, to the pains of hell, condemnation, which lies before us. But God has purposed to redeem mankind and to, to redeem mankind by a redeemer, by a mediator. And that mediator is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is that redeemer. He is that mediator because he is both God and man. Thomas Watson sums it up well, just kind of in the Christ-centered way that the, the catechism is shaped at this point. That Jesus Christ is the sum and quintessence of the gospel. He is the wonder of angels. He is the joy and triumph of saints. The name of Christ is sweet. It is as music in the ear, honey in the mouth, and a cordial at the heart. Because of who Christ is and what he has done, his name rings in our ear. We love to hear the name. We love to speak of him and learn of him. But if Christ is to be central in all that we do and all that we think about uh, as Christians, uh, some theologians have gone so far as to say we need to make the event of Jesus Christ kind of the center of our theological project. We begin doctrine, in other words, with the incarnation of Christ. That's where the study of theology begins. Some people have suggested that. But if you notice all of our reformed standards, 
they, most of them begin with scripture and they go to the doctrine of God and the doctrine of man and the doctrine of sin and then Christ. So Christ is kind of four or five sections in. Why is that? And is it a good suggestion that because we are to make Christ central in all that we do and we are to be Christ-centered people, is it a good idea to sort of make the Christ event the beginning point of theology? That that's where we start all things. Well, I think our Reformed forefathers were on the right track when they began with a doctrine of Scripture, and then the doctrine of God, the doctrine of creation, and then sin, and then they bring in redemption in and through Jesus Christ. Because in order to see the wondrous nature of the incarnation, we must be careful to know and to understand from where Christ came and who he is. A, A good parallel to this would be the gospel of grace is going to be much more glorious if we lean into how serious our sin and rebellion really are. If we understand how serious it is that we have rebelled against God and how deep our rebellion is and how hopeless we are to get ourselves out of our sin, then to hear of the gospel of grace, to hear of redemption, to hear of rescue and forgiveness, it makes it that much more glorious. In a similar way, to uh, hear the announcement that God has become man in Jesus Christ and God saves man in Jesus Christ. The profundity of that statement is going to be magnified if we have a greater foundational understanding of who God is. This is why the doctrine of God is so important. This is why it is so vital that we lean into understanding the perfections and the attributes of God, his eternity, his unchangeability, that the divine nature does not suffer, it is not overcome with, with passions or suffering, that he never wavers from his character, that he is perfectly holy. To lean into all of those things and to understand that there is a distinction between God and man. There is a chasm between us. That we have a connection to God as his image bearers. We are made in his image to reflect certain things about him and to be like him in certain ways. But there is a distinction between creator and creature. And when we begin to understand that more and and see the depth of that chasm, the, the, the greater the glory of the incarnation is. Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, and he became man. John says in verse 14, we have seen his glory. And there, John is probably saying many different things at once. What does it mean when John says he saw his glory? Well, in the book of 1 Peter, Peter says, uh, we beheld the majesty of Christ. And there he's most likely alluding to the Mount of Transfiguration. John was there too. He saw Jesus transfigured uh, on, on the mount there. He also saw Jesus in his resurrected glory. He also saw Jesus as he ascended into heaven. He also saw a glory from Jesus in his teaching, all of his words and all of his works, the miracles that he wrought, changing, uh, feeding the 5,000 with just a few loaves and fish, healing of the lame and the deaf and the blind and raising the dead, seeing Lazarus. Uh, called out of the tomb. He saw his glory in many different ways. 
And in his epistle in 1 John, says, That which we have seen, which we have touched with our hands, which we have, which we have, and we have followed Jesus, we've been around him, we've listened to his words, this we now proclaim to you. There'll be many different things that John may be saying there, but probably mostly culminating in the resurrected and ascending glory of Jesus Christ. We have seen it. We saw him crucified. We saw him raised. We have seen his glory. And what glory is it? It's the glory of the one and only. The glory of the only God, like whom there is no other. John is then leaning into the doctrine of God there. And reminding us that we need to understand who the one and only is. Or something of the one and, who the one and only is. What he is like. His character and his attributes is why the doctrine of God is so vitally important and why we start fundamentally with the doctrine of scripture and the doctrine of God in our study of theology and doctrine. We need to know where the standard is by which we define all of these things about God. To where do we go to learn about him? We go to his word and his word teaches us all of these things about who he is. He is eternal He is unchangeable in all that he is. And so it's important to understand from where this Christ comes and who he is. Certain texts in the New Testament lay that groundwork. So Hebrews chapter 1 says that Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. From him radiates the glory of God because he is God. Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. In heaven and earth. Visible and invisible. Thrones, dominions, rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is the beginning He is the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. These statements are made to us under the inspiration of the Spirit, so that we would step back and see the profundity. In him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. If you understand something of the distinction between creator and and creature. That'll hit you in a deeper way. It'll make you wonder at the glory of the incarnation. And it is a glorious thing. It is a beautiful thing. It's beyond words what it is to speak of Christ being God and man. It truly is a miracle. So in question and answer 22, we have the answer given to us But uh, the simplicity of the answer and what is simply stated there uh, can't fully uh, wrap itself around the wonder of it all. So how did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and born of her, yet without sin. All of those things are absolutely true. And all of those things are scripturally true. And we cling to those things as foundational cornerstones of our faith. But that answer is a, it's a humble answer. 
It's a simple answer. And the the scriptures themselves are humble and careful the way that they describe to us the incarnation because of the mysterious nature. How does a divine, how does the divine nature and a human nature join itself together in the person of Jesus of Nazareth? So in Luke chapter 1, Mary is speaking with the angel. The angel has said to her that there, uh, there will be a child given to her, will come forth from her. She says, well, how will this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy the Son of God. Some of us may think that, that Mary would be tempted to just sort of say the question again. Right? Well, but how? How is it going to happen? The angel just says, the Holy Spirit is going to do it. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And there will be a child given to you. Uh, Matthew chapter 1 that we looked at recently. Uh, the angel said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Simply stated... Joseph is expected to take it upon faith. And so since the scriptures are humble and careful about the way that they talk about the incarnation and how it happened, how it was brought about, our our Reformed standards the same way, we too ought to be humble and careful when we speak about it. Francis Beatty, the Presbyterian minister, says this, He was conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her yet without sin. This is simply stating the most mysterious fact in the language of Scripture. Though through a miracle wrought by the Holy Ghost, the human nature of the Redeemer was brought into union with the Eternal Son. And so the result of this, of the incarnation, is in one person, in one person, Jesus Christ, there are two natures. The divine nature eternally has existed. It is eternal. It is joined to a human nature. And, uh, and uh, Jesus takes to himself also a body and a reasonable soul. Beatty goes on to say this, As the eternal Son of God, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity and truly of the essence of deity. He is thus of one and the same divine essence as the Father and equal with him in power and glory. In no respect, therefore, is there any essential inferiority in the Son to the Father. For Trinitarian Christians, we must affirm this without blinking, without doubting it. Certainly there is mystery behind it. We don't fully comprehend it. But Jesus, as the second person of of the Trinity, there is no essential inferiority in him to the Father. All that God is, Jesus is. All that God has, Jesus has. He's not only true God, but he is true man. And so the catechism tells us that in order to be a true man, you take to yourself a body and a reasonable soul. All of the essential elements of man's nature. One theologian says he had a true human body of flesh and blood, just like that of any man except for sin. He was thus of the seed of Abraham and not of the nature of angels. He didn't just appear or seem like a man. He truly was. This means that he had all of the faculties of human beings, mind, uh, uh, the will, and the affections. It's important to understand how these two natures exist side by side, divine 
and human. The divine nature does not become a human nature. One does not become the other. The divine nature does not combine with the human nature to make a third kind of uh, superhuman nature. That's not what happens at all. And they do not sort of blend together in the person of Christ so that divine attributes and human attributes sort of nebulously exist side by side. They are kept separate in some mysterious way in the person of Christ. All of this is glorious and mysterious and in many ways beyond our ability to comprehend. And so how do we respond to that? How do you respond to something in the Bible regarding our God, regarding Jesus Christ, that we cannot fully comprehend? Well, we worship and we adore what we fail to fully comprehend. Thomas Watson says, Admire the glory of this mediator. He is God-man. He is co-essentially glorious with the Father. And then he, uh, he makes the, the, the parallel. Uh, he says, All the Jews that saw Christ in the flesh did not see his Godhead. All that saw the man did not see the Messiah. The temple of Solomon within was embellished with gold. Travelers, uh, gold. Travelers, as they passed along, might see the outside of the temple, but only the priests saw the glory which sparkled within the temple. And so now believers can see Christ's glory inside, the Godhead shining through his human nature. We have this blessing of understanding That Jesus Christ, though he walked this earth and though he appeared to be but a man to so many, has within him this divine nature and this glory. It is a wondrous thing and something for which we worship Jesus Christ. We worship the person of Christ. We look to him and we worship and adore him. I can't move on without showing some of the ways that the incarnation has far-reaching effects for how we think about many things in life, including uh, ethics, personal ethics, about uh, decisions that we make and issues that are here in our world. So it's important to understand that when Christ was conceived in the womb of Mary, at that very moment that the divine nature is joined to the human nature, which would have happened right at conception. It has to happen right at that moment when there is fertilization inside of Mary. At that very moment, the personhood existed within the womb of Mary. And that teaches us something about the human being. That personhood and all of the rights that go along with that, right? How do you treat persons? They have rights to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. We ought not to harm other persons. That happens right at that moment of conception. So there's all of these debates now about what's really there in the womb of, of a woman. A clump of cells. Do we call it, should we call it a fetus? Everyone's afraid to call it a person. Because we are Trinitarian Christians who believe in the incarnation, we have within special revelation this explicit evidence It's the foundation and cornerstone of our faith. We must believe at the moment Mary conceived, at conception, there was within her womb a person. And so 
one of the reasons, there are many reasons why Christians ought to be fiercely opposed to abortion. The incarnation is one of those reasons. You think of not only an issue like abortion, but you can think of transgenderism, which is an issue that's going around in our world uh, nowadays and spreading like wildfire. But we understand that personhood, because of the incarnation, and when it happens, personhood is tied to our bodies. Our DNA is part of that. So if you would go back in the history of, of society, the Christian church, and you would say something like, you know, I, I feel like I'm a man trapped in a woman's body. That never would have made any sense because people understood that their personhood, who they are, is tied to how God created them. How God made them. And so now we have this journey of the self. Almost like there's this person inside of you that you have to discover. And it may be completely apart. May be completely detached to how you are physically made. How you physically are designed by God. But if you are a Trinitarian Christian. And you believe in the incarnation. You would understand a personhood is tied to that weaving together. In a mother's womb. And if we want to know something about who we were made to be. We can actually trust our bodies in that question. How does God want you to live? How did he design you? That is uh, one of the places that we go to answer those kinds of questions. And so we understand the design of God behind all of those things. The incarnation. There are so many different ways that we can apply that practically to our lives. For the rest of the time tonight, I just want to talk about why the incarnation happened. And I know I'm short on time, so we'll go through this quickly. Why did Christ have to be God and man? The Heidelberg Catechism unfolds this so beautifully for us. But here are just some reasons. The first is this, and we see this in our beloved Heidelberg. A mere man could not have borne the wrath of God. He would not have been able to sustain it. So one theologian says, Gethsemane and Calvary needed the supports of the divine nature for the burden which rested on the human in the agony of the garden and the sufferings of the cross. Again, the divine nature does not suffer in itself. But because Christ is God and man, there is a a pulling the human nature along because of the power of the divine. It also increases the value of Christ's redemptive work. We look at the price that was paid. You think of that that beautiful hymn that we sing, Amazing Love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? We're singing that not because we believe God died or that the divine nature ceased to be when Christ uh, was killed on the cross. That's not what we're saying. But we look to Christ and we say, He is my God and He died for me. And the the wonder of understanding that it wasn't just a mere man who paid this price. It increases the value of Christ's work. And increases the wonder in our own hearts. So the divine nature carries the human nature along. It increases the value of the redemptive redemptive work. And it assures that that work will be successful because God does not fail. Now, Christ was really tempted. He was actually tempted when he, for instance, when he was tempted in the wilderness. His temptations were real. But 
because he is God and man, there is an assurance there that he will not fail. We think of the many things that Christ was to secure. He was to secure the favor of God for us. We are are beloved and we are favored by God because of Jesus Christ. But that favor would not have been able to be won unless it was won by the Son of God with whom the Father was well pleased. Remember, the, the Father says that at the baptism of Jesus. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. That favor of God that we experience in Christ is the favor of a father to an only son. When my dad came and my athletic career was extremely mediocre, extremely mediocre. And, but when my dad would come to my games, uh, and, he, and he always did, uh, he, he would be happy when my team scored a basket or scored a touchdown. But as you can understand, you can relate to, he was unbelievably happy when I scored a basket or, or I scored a touchdown because the favor of the Father was upon the Son. And so Jesus Christ is the one with whom the Father is pleased and he procures this favor for us because of who he is. The ransom price is, uh, is enough to redeem not just one man, but all of the elect. There's some mysterious way in which because he is God and man, he can, it's not that he just redeems one man, he redeems all those who believe in him. All of the elect. The, the ransom price is increased. The gifts that Christ gives, he sends to us the Spirit in his stead. And he is able to send to us the third person of the Trinity because he is divine. That's a gift that he secures for us because he is divine. He has the authority to send the Spirit because he is God. You think of the victory that we experience over Satan and all of uh, the evil forces in the world. Satan is greater than us. He, he is greater than we are, but he is not greater than God. He is not greater than Christ. And so Christ comes as the conqueror because he is more powerful than all of the powers of evil. For all of those reasons and for more, he had to be God. He had to be man because we needed to be redeemed. We needed our natures to be advanced, to be brought to a place that we could not bring ourselves. We were stuck in our fallenness, and our sinfulness. He had to be man because it's a suitable satisfaction. Man has sinned and man must pay for sin. He became man so that he might be sympathetic to all of our weaknesses. So that he might know and understand and to be able to sympathize so that when we pray to him, when we place our trust in him, when we look to him, we understand that he has known uh, the miseries of humanity. And he must be man so that Not just so that he would satisfy God's justice for us, but so that he might make intercession. That's why in question and answer 21, the catechism says, so he was and he continues to be God and man. We have a man in heaven who pleads for us, who intercedes for us. He's a God man, but he is a man. For all of these reasons and for so much more, we needed the Redeemer to be both God and man. So in closing... All of this should at least convince us a little bit more how great, how wonderful it is, and how wise it is 
to look to Christ alone for salvation. A God-man like this, a Savior like this, a Redeemer like this, so glorious, so wondrous, so beautiful, uh, we ought to be saying it is abundantly clear that we ought to be looking nowhere else for our salvation. Watson says, Thomas Watson, if we could weep rivers of tears, if we could outfast Moses on the mountain, if we were exact moralists, touching the law, blameless, if we could arrive at the highest degree of sanctification in this life, all this would not save us without looking to the merits of him who is God. Our perfect holiness in heaven is not the cause of our salvation, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. To this, therefore, did Paul flee as to the horns of the altar, that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. So he joyfully set aside all other things that he might be found in Christ through trusting in him, for he alone is the Redeemer, and he alone is the Savior. Let's pray. So great God, we thank you and praise you and ask that you would impress all of these truths upon us tonight and in the days to come that we might serve you all of our days. In Christ's name, amen.